Uh, let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers. We will not be in Numbers very long, I warn you. Numbers chapter 33. Here they're busting out the toy box. <laughs> I love it. Hey, for me, I, I'm so glad. You know, some churches, they're so on edge with kids and kids making noise and stuff, man. I'd much rather have noise than not have the kids. Amen, Amen to that. He believes it. Amen. I agree. Well, maybe that's just because I lived it. And now, you know, most of the time my kids can sit still, so... That's a blessing, but uh, yeah, I know. Amen. Suffer the little children. That's what Jesus said. I'll take it seriously. All right, Numbers 33. We're going to pray, and then we're going to read this passage or this uh, one verse, and then we'll turn to another passage and and, uh, begin our study. So Numbers 33, let's pray together and ask the Lord for His blessing upon His Word as we study. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to gather together as your church. I thank you for each person that's here and that's listening. I pray, Lord, would you please meet with us? Would you please uh, walk in and out among us and teach us as we study your word? Lord, we confess we have no ability uh, to explain or understand the word of God. Lord, we need your spirit to impress upon our heart what it says and to teach us. So, Lord, we commit this time to you. And we trust, entrust it to you that you would use it in a way that would be profitable to us and beneficial and, and glorifying to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Numbers 33, let's look at verse number 52. <clears throat> Just before the children of Israel are going into the land of Canaan, this uh, verse 52 says this, Then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their pictures and destroy all their molten images and quite pluck down all their high places. Quite pluck down all their high places. Now, if you you were to go to Cambodia and or many places actually in Asia, and you were, to, you were to just ride down some of the national roads in Cambodia, you would not drive far, and on the left-hand side, depending on where you are, on the left-hand side, or on the right-hand side of the road, off in the distance, you would see these little hills. And, uh, you know, if you get, once you get into the more mountainous areas where we live, there weren't very many mountains. Uh, in fact, there were just little hills, so it was actually very easy to spot them. But if you go to a place that's more hilly, what you would find is on top of those hills, those high places, you would find oftentimes there would be either a Buddhist pagoda or a temple complex or some other kind of shrine or idol or temple uh, dedicated to a local, we might call it like a local guardian spirit, something like that. And people go to those high places to worship, and this is in Cambodia in 2022. People go there to worship, and they give sacrifices of various kinds, and they uh, take part in various rituals for various reasons, for uh, uh, 
just usually it has to do with health or prosperity or wealth or something like that. And they, they, they serve and they worship these idols. This is, what, this is part of what is, what is described as animism or spiritism. These things are real. And those high places, I'm not sure what, what it is in the human nature that, that, that causes people to want to establish these kinds of shrines on the tops of hills. But it is something that's purely scriptural. It's something that's, it was true in that culture and it's true in other cultures in the world, especially in pagan cultures, because it's a pagan thing. Uh, but it, it exists to this very day. And God said in Numbers 33, He said, that when the children of Israel were, were, to, were going into the land of Canaan, God told them to quite pluck down all of those high places. Uh, because, of course, we know that God wanted Israel to worship and serve Him and Him alone. And uh, that's a very important uh, principle throughout the Scripture. So, what we're going to do is we're going to walk through the book of uh, first and second books of first and second kings, and we're going to see where these uh, these references to high places occur, and we're not we're not going to spend long at any one passage at any one passage or, or set of verses. We're going to just kind of walk through it and uh, and kind of see where 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 this subject of these high places because as I was reading first and second kings recently you start to see this repetitive statement. You start to see these repetitive mentions of these high places. And it tells us a lot about the spiritual condition of Judah and of Israel, but especially of Judah, uh, from one generation to the next, because it covers quite a long time. So let's look at the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings. We'll start in chapter number 3. 1 Kings chapter 3. So if you stay in 1 Kings, we won't deviate very much from 1 Kings. So you can follow right along and we can move right along through this book. So high places in the scripture were not always used as places of idolatrous worship. In fact, there was one one time in uh, the days of David, it's actually in 1 Kings chapter 3, we won't read it, but, um, but... uh, actually, not First Kings. It's in First Chronicles, chapter twenty-one, where David, during the days of David, which was a, the days of, of great faithfulness to God, uh, and then the days of Solomon, especially the first part of Solomon's reign, Israel was faithful to God and worshipped worshipped God. Remember, at that time, especially in the time of David, there was no temple yet, which was a permanent place of worship. There was only the tabernacle, which was a mobile place of worship. It was, it, was a, it was a tent, what we call a tent, but it was just a big tent. And, but it could be taken down and, and, and put back up, and so it moved. And there was sometimes, at one point, there, the, there was a high place or a top of a hill at Gibeon where the, uh, where the, the tabernacle was pitched, and, and where, that's for instance, where Samuel went and where David went, and it was there uh, in the days of Solomon as well. But at that time, there were no, first of all, it was, they were worshiping God and God alone. So it wasn't the location that mattered, that, but they were worshiping God and God alone at that time. But then later, those high places were used for idolatrous worship. In fact, they weren't just used for idolatrous worship. 
Uh, later, they were used for idolatrous worship, as we just read, in the land of Canaan by the inhabitants of Canaan. And that's an important point to remember. And so we get to 1 Kings chapter 3, and look what it says. It says, And Solomon made, now this is the latter half of Solomon's reign, And Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had made an end of building his own house, and the house of the Lord and the wall of Jerusalem round about. Everything's going well, but Solomon's spirituality is degrading. Remember, they had just built the temple. The temple is finished. There is a permanent place that God has established for worship. No other place is allowed, at least for sacrifice. Verse 2, only the people sacrificed in high places because there was no house built unto the name of the Lord unto those days. So again, prior to Solomon building the temple, the people sacrificed in the high places because the temple had not been built. And then you get to verse 3. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statues of David his father. Notice what it says, the caveat, only he sacrificed and burnt incense in high places. See, God raises that fact as a criticism of Solomon. You see that? In other words, Solomon was doing great. Solomon loved the Lord. He was serving the Lord. But he had this one thing that marred and was a blot on his record. And that was his, uh, his frequenting the high places. And so the high places represent, uh, represent a, it represents, if, if we can kind of make an, applic- make an application to our, our time and in our life personally, it kind of represents that kind of sin that's kind of latent in our life, that's kind of dormant. It's kind of always there. Okay, so if you follow that thought, I think you understand what I'm, I'm trying to say. Um. Whenever you see the high places come up after this point, it's always bad. It's always negative, and it's always idolatrous. So you have the people who are serving the Lord, but while they are serving the Lord, while they are faithful to God, while they love God, on the side, they're also paying, uh, giving worship and, and giving uh, uh, honor and offering, giving offerings to these local gods or spirits that were that that were these high places were dedicated to and so you have you have this this uh, this kind of sin that's following them wherever they go you have this sin that's following where they go but here's what I want you to understand in this case Solomon is where it first starts when Solomon's spirituality begins to degrade, Solomon is, when we read in the scripture, he's at a high point in his life when the temple is built. You think of that prayer. Have You guys remember, you've read the prayer of, of dedication of Solomon. It is a beautiful prayer. It's a beautiful prayer for us to pray. But that's a high point in his life. But, but you know, as you go on, if, as you go on through the years, Solomon begins to degrade. And then these high, his, his, his going to these high places starts, and that's, where the sin in Israel begins. And here's the thing. The children of Israel using and visiting high places continues through their entire history, but it started with Solomon. It started with Solomon. Now, here's the thing. 
If we compare these, these high places as, uh, to, to sin in our lives, we need to understand something. This started with Solomon and it continued. And what would happen is, as you'll see in a minute, that the, the, there would be kings that would come along and they would, they would deal with the high places and then it would pop right back up. And then they would, de- and they would pop right back up. It was always there. And even with the good kings, it was still there. It was still there. Here's the point I want to make with that. Sin in our life cannot be tolerated. We tolerate far too much sin in our lives. We know it's there, and we let it persist. We let it stay. We know it's not right but we continue to let it stay. We don't deal with it. We don't root it out. Here's the thing. It must be rooted out. Otherwise, it will grow. Sin tolerated will always grow. It'll always grow. Now, if you would look at 1 Kings chapter 14, just keep going to the right. We're going to go to the next king, Rehoboam. In verse 23, 1 Kings 13, verse 23, the Bible says this, And it came to pass, this is Rehoboam now, after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk, that he saddled uh, for him. I don't feel like I'm in the right. No, this is not the right passage. Fourteen twenty-three. I'm looking at this like, this is not right. Thank you. 14, chapter 14, verse 23, says this, For they also built them high places and images and groves on every high hill and under every green tree. Verse 24, And there were also sodomites in the land, and they did according to all the abominations of the nations, notice this, which the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. You see how it's growing? It started with with Solomon, with the high places. Now there's more high places. And now there's images and there's groves, which are little clumps of trees, little little kind of gardens or orchards of trees that are planted and used in the, the idolatrous ceremonies. And what was started as a small sin is now growing as time goes on. Because it was left, it was left alone and tolerated to grow. And so now you have, in addition, you have verse 24, there's sodomites in the land. These are these are these are like the male version of a prostitute, often used in idolatrous sacrifices. And this is wickedness. So what's happening is what was a what was a small sin is now growing into a bigger sin. It's growing into an uglier, moral sin in the life of the nation. And that's what happens with us. That's exactly what happens with us. We have to be vigilant against the reappearance and reemergence of sin in our lives. Because it's, it's always kind of, nobody says anything. Yet, like th- those high places during the time of Solomon and the early, early reign of Rehoboam, they were there. Everybody knew where they were there, but nobody made a big deal. You know, then it's not bothering anybody, so they just let it go. Just like we do with sin. It's not really affecting my life all that much. But what happens is, 
It's there the whole time waiting for the moment when we are not actively seeking it out to root it out and take it out of our lives. We just leave it alone. And when we leave it alone, it takes root downward and it bears fruit upward. It must be eradicated. And this is the reason why we have to actively seek and destroy sin in our lives. And here's why I, why I use those, that terminology. You remember the verses in the Psalms. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. See if there be any wicked way in me. Is that, what, is, what are we doing in that verse? What is the psalmist doing? He's asking God, because God knows way better than we do. He's asking God to search and find that sin that we have let alone, we have forgotten about, that we have begun to tolerate. It is biblical to actively seek out our sin in our lives wherever it is, no matter how small it might appear, and to root it out and to not tolerate it. It is, a, it is a fact of Christian life that we do tolerate it. And oftentimes we get the impression that if the sin does not cause some great pain in our life or shame in our life, that it's not that bad. But we need to remember, sin is the transgression of God's law. It doesn't matter if it negatively affects our life, obviously, or not. A sin is a sin in the sight of God, and it is an evil in His sight. No matter how small or how large it might appear to us. Look look at chapter 15 at Asa. Verse 11, look at what Asa did. Asa was a good king. Chapter 15, verse 11 says, And Asa did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did David his father. And he took away the Sodomites out of the land and removed all the idols and that his fathers had made. Okay, so what, what's happening here is under Rehoboam, it's degraded, but now under Asa, he's gaining ground. Asa is gaining ground. But he's gaining ground, but if you look at chapter 22, look at chapter 22, Chapter 22, verse 46, what does it say? And the remnant of the Sodomites, which remained in the days of his father Asa, he took out of the land. This is a different king. All right. Did he take all the Sodomites out of the way, all the sinners? Did he take them all out of the way? No. What has started as a small sin has now gotten, gotten into a bigger sin, an ugly moral sin. And so the king comes along and he has a revival. And he says, I need to get this out of my life. We need to get this out of the kingdom. And so he takes it away, but he only takes it partially away. And then back in, in, in chapter 15, where we just were, in verse number 14, there's a little bit of extra information that says this, but the high places were not removed. Not, nevertheless, Asa's heart was perfect with the Lord all his days. So you have this condition where he's making progress and he's having a revival and he's getting that sin out of his life but he leaves the high places. That sin that's been there the whole time. He's got rid of a bunch of stuff. In other words, he's taking, taking, taking care of some of the big sin, but he's, he's leaving the little sin. He's leaving that little latent kind of dormant sin in his life, in the kingdom. He's allowing that to be tolerated. 
And then you get to Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat. Look at 1 Kings 22. First Kings 22. Here's what the Bible says of Jehoshaphat. And he walked, verse 43, chapter 22, verse 43, and he walked in all the ways of Asa his father and turned not aside from doing it, uh, from it, doing that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. For the people offered burnt incense yet in high places. In the high places. So again, the high places persist. Through Je- Asa, through Jehoshaphat. But then, I'll just read this for time. I'm going to read Second Chronicles chapter 17 about Jehoshaphat, verses 3 and 4. If you'll just listen, here's what it says. And the Lord was with Jehoshaphat, because he walked in the first ways of his father David and sought not unto Balaam, but sought to the Lord God of his father and walked in his commandments and not after the doings of Israel. So Jehoshaphat was a good king, and it's evidenced by the fact that God notes that he did not go after Balaam. Balaam was a vile. Baal worship was a vile form of worship. It was the, it was the worship that was already in Canaan when the children of Israel went in there. And that's the kind of moral and ugly kind of degradation that existed in the land of Canaan. That's the kind of thing God told them to eradicate out of the land of Canaan when the children of Israel went in there. But God knows that Jehoshaphat, yes, yes, we do see that the, the high places are not taken away. He made progress, but God knows this man was a good, this man was a good king. He had a good heart with God because he did not go after Balaam. Now, God notes both. See what I'm saying? God notes the, the, the high places were left, but he did make progress and he did not turn to Balaam. So God notes Jehoshaphat's righteousness. And this tells us, as I said, that the worship of Baal in this represents or, or, or can be applied to an especially egregious sin in our life. You know, listen, I'm, I'm glad when I'm not committing some great kind of ugly moral sin. And I'm glad when you're not. And God sees that. And God knows it. And God is pleased. But we need to look at the whole picture. We need to look at the high places as well as the worship of Baal. And then we go to the reign of Jehoash, or also called Joash, in 2 Kings 12.3. 2 Kings 12.3, if you'll look at that, just a few pages over. It says this, but the high places, at verse 2 says, And Jehoash did that which was right in the sight of the Lord all the days wherein Jehoiada the priest instructed him, but... The high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense in the high places. Again, this sin is still there. It's still there. And then after him, I'll skip some of this just for time. Amaziah came after him. Amaziah also in 2 Kings 14.4 describes the high places persisting and enduring during the time of Amaziah. And then, and then you go to Azariah, who is also called 
Uzziah. In 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 4, the Bible says that Uzziah, uh, the high places were still there during the reign of Uzziah. So you have three kings in a row, four, maybe even five kings in a row, that they, they know the high places should not be there. There's sin in the, in the, uh, in the nation. God has forbidden it. There is already a place of worship, and yet sin is being tolerated. It's being tolerated. But I want to make a point from this. Even though sin is being tolerated, God still calls these men good kings. He does. In fact, if you look at 2 Chronicles chapter 26, if you're interested, you can turn there. 2 Chronicles 26 verse 5, listen, listen to this. These kings here that allowed the high places to remain, but God still called them good kings, they accomplished things for God too, despite the fact that there was sin in the kingdom that they permitted. Uzziah, is an, as an example, Uzziah in 2, King, uh, 2 Chronicles 26 verse 5, and the Bible says, And he sought God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God, and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. You see? And if you read about the other three kings that are mentioned there, uh, you read about Joash, you read about Amaziah, and then Azariah. What you find is that God called them good kings. You find they, there was still the high places in the land, but they still accomplished things that were good. They built the nation up. They sought the Lord. Their heart was with God. They served God. That's what you read in the text of Scripture, even though they had this sin. You know what this shows us? The Bible says in Romans chapter 7 that sin is in us. Sin is in us. Romans 7 verse 17 tells us that. Even though we try to do good, sin is still there. When I, when I would do good, sin is still there. But despite that fact, God nevertheless, uses us and blesses us despite the fact of the sin that is, that is present with us. You see, we get, sometimes get this idea that God, God only blesses people that have no sin. None. We rid ourselves of it all. And God's only nice to people that have no sin. That's not true. If that was the case, there would be none of us that would enjoy God's blessings ever. That's not the way God does things, and I'm thankful that He doesn't. God, Psalm 103, verse 14, He knoweth our frame. He remembereth we are what? We are dust. God knows who we are. He knows how we are. He knows, he knows the high places. He knows the Baal worship. He knows everything about us, the big stuff, the little stuff. And yet He still... He still, you know, even though, even though we have things in our life, like I said, we have things in our life that we, we tolerate. We're not quite ready to give up and root out. We tolerate it. It's not right, but we tolerate it. And God still manages to use us despite that. He still manages to bless us and help us spiritually and help us to grow and serve Him. But this fact doesn't, should not be misunderstood as an approval of our sin, that little sin. It's not an approval. 
What God has said on the matter of that, those high places stands. Wrong is wrong. But what it does show us is how kind our God is to us. To bless us and help us to grow and prosper us spiritually despite the fact that sin is in our life. Would God we had a heart. Would God I had a heart to, to really seek out and rid even the high places from my heart, right? And then we move on to Jotham. I won't read it because we run out of time here, but Jotham was another king. Again, high places are mentioned, still there. And then you get to 2 Kings 16. Look at that, 2 Kings 16, verse 3, Ahaz. Ahaz is the first king, the first king of Judah that sends his child through a fire to a false god. Deuteronomy 18.10 specifically forbid that because that was what the Canaanites were doing. They, God strictly forbid this kind of sacrifice. 16 verse 3, But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, yea, and made his son to pass through the fire according to the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out from before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burnt incense in the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Notice, high places are still there, but let's add on top of it a bunch of egregious moral abominations on top of that. And sometimes Christians fall into this. Sometimes Christians have these kind of, these kind of abominations, these kind of egregious sins we get caught in, that we fall into, God forbid. But it does happen. As we continue, we see Ahaz introduced a new kind of wickedness. Because in chapter 16, verses 10 through 15, which I won't read right now, Ahaz went to a new level. Not only to have the high places, and then the moral abominations of passing his children through the fire, literally. But now he's taking the temple of God, which wasn't done previously. He's taking the temple of Jehovah and is desecrating it with idols, uh, with uh, the idols of false gods. In other words, that which that which was holy before and you wouldn't dare touch, he's now shamelessly and brazenly desecrating. And this is this is the point where things that are intended and where it comes down to us, things that, that God intends for, for, uh, to be holy in our lives, are now not off limits any longer. Sometimes you know when you when you get around people. You know, especially as a preacher, when they find out you're a preacher, all of a sudden they want to watch their tongue. You know, when you're, maybe when you're at work, they find out you're a Christian. They're like, oh, well, oh, sorry, sorry. But then you go to another, that's a, that's a bit of honor, but you go to another level where they don't even care. And then comes Hezekiah. Look at chapter 18, verse 4. Hezekiah. He removed the high places and break the images and cut down the groves and break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense unto it, uh, to it, and he called it Nehush, Nehush, Nehushtan. I love that. I love that. You know what he calls this brazen serpent that, that Moses used? That means a piece of brass. He said, what are you doing worshiping a piece of brass? That's what he called it. That's what that word means. 
He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah nor any that were before him. For he clave to the Lord and departed not from following him, but kept his commandments which the Lord commanded Moses. All right, so here you get Hezekiah. Hezekiah has a personal revival of the truest sort. Hezekiah, this is a turning point in the history of Israel. He roots out and destroys the, the big sins, the Baal worship, the, the, the abominations that are in the temple, he, all the idols. He's looking for them. He's throwing them out. He's getting all the sin in his life like we should. He's getting all the sin in our life. We're searching our heart. Where is it? And casting it out, getting rid of it. But even the high places... Even the high places, he's not letting those stay. You see this? And the reason he's not is because in verse 5, he, the Bible says he trusted in the Lord God of Israel. Verse 6 says he clave to the Lord. See, his heart was with God. It wasn't enough to put away enough sin to look respectable as a Christian. He wanted to be right with God, period. And so he, he looked for everything. Lord, if this doesn't please you, I don't care what it is. If, if it's a show we watch, if it's, if it's what we do with our time, if it's the music we listen to or whatever, might, might be a small thing. He rooted it out because he had real revival. He got thoroughly right with God. That's the key, the key word there. Thoroughly right with God. No stone was left unturned. True and complete spiritual revival always uproots all sin and destroys it. When the children of Israel went into the land of Canaan, what did God tell them to do? Obliterate the inhabitants. Because God did not want the, the, the disgusting, abominable practices of those people to cleave to them. But what did they do? They didn't do that. And what are we seeing at this moment? What are we reading about? We're reading about the abominable practices of the people of, the, of Canaan that the children of Israel refused to destroy completely are now affecting the children of Israel. They have, they have started to practice those things all because, of, all because of unthorough cleansing from sin, leaving sin there. Hezekiah didn't do that. He had full revival. But then you get to Manasseh. Chapter 21, verse 3. Manasseh, the Bible says, For he built up again the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. And he reared up altars for Baal and made a grove as Ahab king of Israel. As did Ahab king of Israel. And he worshiped all the hosts of heaven, and serve them. This is new now. He's now worshiping the stars. And he built altars in the house of the Lord. So he's doing what Ahaz did. He's renewing what Hezekiah had destroyed. Of, of which the Lord, the Lord said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he made his son pass through the fire and observed times. That's fortune-telling. And used enchantments and dealt with familiar spirits, that's magic and witchcraft and wizards, and wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And he set a graven image 
of the grove that he had made in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, will I put my name there. And then in verse 16, drop down to that. Moreover, Manasseh shed in innocent blood very much till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. Here's the thing I want you to see about Manasseh. He undid all the revival. Every bit of it. All the good that Hezekiah had done rooting out sin was completely reversed. And that is exactly what sin will do to us. We get thoroughly revived and we throw that sin out of our lives. It will come back and it will totally undo and destroy us. That's the warning here. What we thought we had eradicated is not eradicated. If it comes back, it can make us worse than we were to begin with, which is exactly what happened. Sin always takes us to places further than we intend or think we'll go at the beginning. And there is no boundary with sin. And you know what? No matter how real or thorough we have a revival and how serious we are about getting rid of the sin and walking with God, sin can still completely reverse all of that revival. That's why, listen now, that's why it's foolish for us to rest upon the gains of the past. Because the revival and the spiritual awakening and success and victory we have in the past can be totally reversed, just like, like that. That's why we got to be looking forward. And not in the past. Thank God for what's happened in the past. But if we don't, we don't watch it and we don't maintain, it'll come right back. Come right back. And it'll not only will it hurt us now, but it'll destroy all the good we did. Our relationship to God will be destroyed just like that. That's just the way it works. But Manasseh, Manasseh repented. Do you know that? In 2 Chronicles chapter 33, I won't read it. He repented with action. No, he didn't say, I'm sorry. No, he said, I'm sorry. You know what he did? He tore down all the things he just built. All those, all those places of Baal worship and all, that ungodly, all those ungodly abominations he did, he tore it all down when God got a hold of his heart. You know what God does? God pardons him. The worst king of Israel, God pardoned. This shows us that God is gracious and merciful to us and he will pardon the grossest sin. No sinner should come to God in despair that God will not forgive him. God will forgive every sin. Come now, Isaiah 1.18. Let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as Wool. That's the comparison of an, a, a gross, ungodly, dirty sin compared to what God will do in pardon. So yeah, Hezekiah had a great revival that was totally destroyed by Manasseh in the most wicked and vile way possible and imaginable. But even that man repented and God forgave him. No sinner should despair that God will forgive him. 
Then we get to Josiah. I'm running out of time here, but Josiah in 2 Kings 23, Josiah, like Hezekiah before him, in that low point of Manasseh's, Manasseh's reign, children of Israel doing the most wicked things possible, Josiah comes and he's just a, he's just a kid. He's just a, a, a stripling. And he, he completely obliterates. He roots out all the sin like Hezekiah did, even the high places. Josiah was a fantastic king, and there was great revival. So the only way you can have revival is to root out the sin. You can't get revival and restoration and renewal unless you remove the sin. And so he's removing the sin all the way down to the small stuff that nobody cares about, seemingly. But then in chapter 23, verse 21, look what it says. And the king commanded all the people, this is after all the sin has been cleared out, saying, keep the Passover unto the Lord your God as it is written in the book of this covenant. Josiah replaced all that sin that he had removed with service to God. It's not just, listen, it's not just about, it's especially a message for maybe Zach, especially for, for, for people that are trying to get rid of sin. You can't just get rid of sin and leave that void in your life. You've got to replace that with living for God. Actively living for God. And that protects you. It's not enough to get rid of the sin. That's fine. You get rid of the sin, you get your heart right with God, relationship to God, and then you got work to do because God wants you to live for Him. But another thing about Josiah, which I won't mention, I won't read just for time, is that Josiah's revival came through directly through God's word. Because remember, they found a copy of the book of the law in the temple. He read that and the revival, there was a flash of revival at that very moment that he read it. And he humbled himself before God. And that was the catalyst that led him to get rid of the sin. And a revival of God's word in our lives will be against sin and evil in our lives. And you know what? Here's the thing. God's Word and its influence in our lives has the power to radically affect change in our lives. God's Word and it alone. Not a bunch of other things. God's Word. If you get in God's Word and you get serious about reading God's Word and obeying God's Word, you're going to find that God's Word will change you in big ways. But through neglect and through apathy in reading and studying and following God's word, it doesn't have its effect. What if Josiah had read the word of God and be like, eh, like we do a lot? Would it have affected change in his life in that radical way? No. That's why we have to read it. Receive, the Bible says, receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Last thing I want you to see is that true spiritual revival shown from Josiah's reign not only rids us of sin, but it renews a desire for us to live for God. That's what true revival will do in us. God will point out our sin, but when, when, he's, when He's done dealing with that, He says, all right, it's time to live. 
As in the days of, Je of Hezekiah's reign, after those days, the revival of Josiah was destroyed by those that followed him. Because we know the end of the story, in the, the kingdom of Judah went into captivity as a result primarily of Manasseh's sin, which he repented, but the effects of it kept rolling. And of course, they were taking, they, it, Judah was taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar, destroyed, temple raised to the ground. Josiah was the last righteous king that Judah enjoyed, or will enjoy, for that matter, because since that time, Judah, Israel has had no king. Jesus is the next king. And in one day, the Lord Jesus Christ will descend from heaven, visibly, literally, personally, and will put his feet on the Mount of Olives to the east of Jerusalem. And he will make his way into the city of Jerusalem to establish a kingdom from that city that will span this entire globe. That will be a revival and a restoration and an end, and an end of sin like we've never seen before. But there's a parallel to, for us. You know, you see this in Israel. You see this, you follow these kings. And I'm sure if you've read the books of First and Second Kings and Chronicles, you've seen, you've felt this kind of up and down, back and forth, up and down. And you, you probably, as a Christian, if, you, if you're listening to the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God is, has, has made you grieve a little bit. Why is it like that? But you know what? That's the way we are. You look at your life. Look at your life. Has it not been back and forth and back and forth and up and down and up and down throughout your entire life? It shouldn't be that way, but sometimes it is. We should be, as Pastor Stewart reminds us, consistent. But it's not always consistent. It's up and down and up and down sometimes. And it's up and down when, when we let sin grow in our lives. Then God works in our hearts just like he sent the prophets to the, the kingdoms of Judah and Israel. And we repent and we get rid of that sin. And we, but sometimes we leave that little bit of sin at the bottom, that kind of baseline of sin. We let it, we tolerate it in our lives. And then it grows into something ugly. It catches us in some wicked thing. And then we got to repent. We got to get right. It's back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. But I just want to give you a little bit of encouragement to close. One day, just as Jesus is returning the Mount of Olives, before that time, He's going to return and He's going to take us, you, first, out of this body. Second, to go be with Him, to meet the Lord in the air. And that up and down, back and forth, in and out, pattern that is so prevalent that we saw in Judah, but we also see in ourselves, will finally be eradicated when Jesus comes. Now, of course, that's not an excuse for it. Now, it's not. But Jesus is going to save us from this, from our own evil tendencies. We will be like Him. And we'll never again have to struggle with that sin. It's always there. Wait for an opportunity for us to just... Take our hands off the wheel and let up a little bit so it can pop back up and ruin us. Don't have to worry about that anymore. The Bible says that he will 
that this mortal must put on immortality. This corruptible must put on incorruption. And then shall be brought, brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. You see, this struggle we have with sin, this kind of up and down thing that we see in ourselves, that we see in the kingdom of Judah, God will eradicate it in us. He is going to win. If you're one of God's children, God's going to win in your life. He is going to win. He's going to come out on top. He that hath begun a good work in you, what does it say? Next three words. Will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.